Uh, Mr. Dominicali, that report you asked for into the uh, demographic of Formula One fans is now complete. Excellent. Uh, when I took over as head of Formula One for Liberty Media, I thought I really should do a thorough examination of this sport. So, what does the report say? Well, um, here it is, sir. And it says um, pretty much all the things you might expect. So, Charles? Well, um, F1 fans are predominantly, but not exclusively male. We have a lot of women who uh, love the sport, too. They rather like uh, Charles Leclerc and uh, Daniel Ricciardo. Good, good. This is very good. Uh, younger people are now uh, more engaged with F1, too. This is uh, largely thanks to Lando Norris and his extensive use of uh, social media. Excellent, excellent news. I'm pleased to say that diversity is starting to increase, too. We're uh, seeing people from a broader uh, range of cultures and backgrounds tuning in now, too. Uh, this is largely down to uh, Lewis Hamilton, of course. Oh, it's very, very good. I'm glad to hear this. What about the religion? Well, uh, thanks to uh, Ferrari, of course, uh, Formula One attracts a huge Catholic fan base. Of course it does. Uh, now, Williams uh, apparently is perceived as a uh, Church of England team. So uh, that works really well in, uh, well, parts of the United Kingdom. Hash, well, there's obviously a Jewish link there, so that's covered. A uh, Red Bull attracts a Buddhist fan base, would you believe? Uh, this is uh, explained as because of the Japanese Honda connection. And McLaren, well, they appeal to what is a largely agnostic, if not completely atheist, motorsport fan. Okay, that is uh, some of the major faiths taken care of, and also the people uh, without uh, religion. But this uh, report says that uh, for uh, some reason we are not really appealing to potential Muslim fans of Formula One. Well, uh, that's because we don't have an Islamic team as such, Mr. Dominicali. Okay, well, Alfa Romeo Sauber is for sale, so please, get me Hamas on the phone. They've got loads of money. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth, she's Sarah. Hello. And he's Zog. Hello. How are you doing, guys? We're unusually recording this on a Monday lunchtime, not long after the US Grand Prix has reverberated through our heads. And I watched it live, Sarah. I think you listened to the radio this time. How was it on the radio? Yeah, it was good. The old BBC Five Live with Jenny Gow, Jack Nichols, and a former Renault driver, Joey and Palmer. The three of them are quite good, actually. I enjoyed it. Then I got some vision coming in, too, on the internet. Oh, you're so modern with your multi-screening. <laughs> Soggy, you watched the Sky coverage, presumably. I did, but I have to say, I like the Five Live commentary they do a very good job i think and nichols and palmer i find them a little bit hard to tell apart sometimes <laughs> uh, oh, really? but uh, but they gel well i think it's a good team okay we'll talk about the build-up and the coverage and all that aspect of it in a moment but first of all let's just recap how the race played out a tremendous win by verstappen ahead of lewis who could only just about manage second but with perez 
third. Leclerc, fourth. Danny Ricciardo, very happy to see him in fifth. Bottas, sixth. Sainz, seventh. Norris, eighth. Tsunoda, a sparkling ninth. And Vettel, tenth. Not a bad drive considering where Vettel started either. Highlights of the race for you, Zoggy. What was it that entertained you this weekend? It was a good one, wasn't it? It was. It was interesting that Mercedes started the weekend looking very strong on the Friday, but then by the time it came around to qualifying, Red Bull seemed to have the measure of them and Verstappen was clearly favourite going into the race and starting on pole. Lewis did very well to get him at the start, but once Verstappen got the lead back, I think he really controlled the race very nicely. Red Bull didn't really look like we're going to lose it. It looked like Hamilton was going to catch him at the end, might have a chance to pass him, but yeah, but Verstappen wasn't really troubled. Very good, very confident win. There was some exciting stuff further back down the field with Alonso with his little scraps with Giovinazzi and Raikkonen, the McLaren drivers and Sainz having their little fights. And it's a really great event. I mean, I think as far as event races go, Zandvoort was good. This is great, but also the racing was better than at Zandvoort, I thought. Yeah, there wasn't a great deal of overtaking. There was some. There wasn't a great deal during the race. But as I've often said on this program, that's not a big problem for me because sometimes the scarcity of overtaking makes it appear that when stuff does happen, you value it more. It's like the striptease, isn't it? Oh, I saw a bit of shoulder there. Oh, that's enough, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Really. Sarah, what was the highlight of the race for you? What's your takeaway from the coverage? Well, it seemed to me that the coverage highlight was the tussle at the top between Lewis Verstappen, sorry, Lewis Verstappen, uh, Lewis (laughs) Hamilton and Verstappen, Max Verstappen. So I think that is the highlight, really. Although it's good to hear that Sonoda finished in ninth that's a little highlight he's probably his first top 10 finish and I was very pleased to hear that Daniel Ricciardo had the edge on Lando Norris this time and I think it's either Daniel Ricciardo finally getting a handle of the car or maybe Norris just didn't have a top weekend but so it's tough to say my overall highlight but that's what I picked up as the highlights. I think you're right I was gonna say earlier on Zog when you were talking about the action further down the field I thought yeah 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 there was some stuff happening but it kind of didn't matter and I don't normally say that in Formula One but as we now approach the end game with five more races is it to go the crucible is forcing our focus towards this finale to the championship. There's a supporting act, but really what happens between Max and Lewis at the moment is demanding our absolute and full unadulterated attention. And I like the way in which pretty much for the entire race, these two traded blows, didn't they? It was like watching two giants free-running along a beam and neither of them barely putting a foot wrong or slipping off or just having to refoot themselves at full pace for the entire race and I knew right from the outset okay this is gonna be one of the races where it boils down to the last three laps and whether Lewis is close enough and as I said to Tycho here while we were watching the race together if Max pulls this off if he's able to hold Lewis at bay without putting a foot wrong. He deserves the win and probably deserves the championship. And I think what Max's technique at this last race was to keep Lewis just outside of DRS range. 
in that final element of the race. And if he did that, he knew Lewis wouldn't be able to get alongside him and pass him. Genius, but of grown-up driving from Max, surely. Well, you need the speed in the car to be able to do that. And Red Bull seemed to make the tyre calls just right, you know, getting the undercut early on and then, again, timing the second stop so as to, I guess, deny Mercedes a chance of pulling one out on them. Now, it meant that Hamilton had fresher tyres at the end, but he just wasn't able to make the best of that. And, yeah, they were just beaten fair and square by Verstappen and Red Bull. And of course, Red Bull are probably favoured for the next couple of races. These next couple of tracks, Mexico and Brazil, are both tracks where they tend to go well and are expected to go well. So, yeah, the odds are probably favouring Verstappen in the title fight right now. You know, I'd have said Lewis would have been my pick a couple of races ago, but I think Verstappen has to be favourite now, surely. It appeared that Red Bull had, in inverted commas, an aggressive race strategy. And that's what Max Verstappen said at the end of the race. And I think they took a risk to be aggressive. So I don't know if you're able to expand on that for us, Gareth. An aggressive race strategy. I think that they meant they were going to push the duration of each of those tyres to the max and would have to run flat out in order to get where they want to be to put themselves on that particular part of the track at that particular part of the race you know they're doing projections the whole time and there are conservative ones where you think oh well maybe you know we won't push the tires to the limit but we'll be safe or aggressive ones well but we're going to hang on to those tires to their last minute and as Zog said Max wasn't on the best of tires for the last few laps of the race but still managed to hold it on the black stuff That's some talent, isn't it? And more and more we're hearing people say that Max Verstappen may be one of the greatest natural talents ever to grace Formula One. That's high praise, Zog. I mean, are we mixing in with Ascari now and Senna? Tremendously hard to compare drivers across eras, but I think what you can clearly say is that where Lewis Hamilton is the dominant driver of the current just-ending era... Verstappen is the next champion in waiting. There's other tremendous young talent snapping at his heels, but Verstappen, he's the next big star. Yeah, he already is a star. Uh, He already is. I'd be amazed if he's not going to win multiple championships in the next six to ten years. Although, having said that, as being the next big star, talking about the way in which Formula One seems to be taking a hold in the United States now, largely down to drive to survive, I'm told. That's opened up Formula One in a new way. Of the two Red Bull drivers, I think Perez is probably the more popular driver in the United States, certainly in the southern United States, of course, with the huge Mexican population that you get in the southern US. And they were going not for him in Austin and that warms my heart and he delivered you know he was there will he have a a good race when he gets to Mexico though he often has had a bad time at his home race Sergio I hope he uh... oh by the way I looked into pronunciation of his name met some Spanish speakers asked them about it the correct way to say his name is not like I said Sergio but closer to what you said Zog you soften the G, Sergio. Okay. But certainly not Sergio under any circumstances. Sergio, Sergio. is how they say okay. it. Okay. 
So now we know. Hooray. Yeah, yeah, I met a charming Spanish woman called Isabella and a guy called Santiago the other day, and I drilled them about pronunciation. It was fantastic. Good for you. Um, okay, sorry, where was I? The result of the race is fascinating. We've now got Max leading Lewis by how many points, Sarah? You're good on all this. I think that, yeah, he's been able to double the margin. Max Verstappen is on 287.5, and Lewis Hamilton is on 275.5. 10 points. Wow. So you were talking about the Austin Grand Prix being a massive event. I think there were something like 400,000 people at the race over the weekend. That's amazing. Over the weekend, yeah, yeah correct. I think there were 140,000 or so on race day. I don't know if you watched it on the Friday and the Saturday as well, but Sky had wonderful Danica Patrick oh, yeah. as their additional on-screen talent, as they say in the world of television. And it was really interesting because... Danica spent time in the UK and in Europe. She raced in the lesser Formula E in Formula Ford and Formula Vauxhall and had, uh, I think, a Formula 3 test, befriended Jensen Button in that period. But her world took her, quite rightly too, back to her native territory, to IndyCar and then later NASCAR. And she's the only woman ever to have won in IndyCar. As a driver, there's absolutely no doubting that woman's skills. She was fantastic. She took on a fierce field and beat them. But on the Friday, it was apparent that she wasn't the greatest expert in the sphere of what was going on in Formula One at the moment. And she really didn't know who some of the people were around her when they were interviewed. Various team bosses came and went. She really didn't know who they were. And the sort of comments that she made were very general. They were absolutely right. She said the right thing. She was sort of making comparisons. Well, in my experience in IndyCar, this happens and this happens. But bless her. She's clearly a fast learner because by Sunday, she was suddenly able to name drivers in her answers and comment with a bit more authority. It must be really hard getting dropped into Formula One. I think what you really want from a driver who's contributing to the coverage over the weekend, you know, a guest driver presenter, you know, is kind of driving insights. And in talking about the track and the lap that Danica did with Simon Lazenby, I was fascinated to see, I mean, apart from what she was saying about the circuit, which is interesting, her focus was wonderful. You know, they're having a conversation and she's telling them about the circuit and the different approaches you might take in different types of car to the circuit, to the different lines of the corners. But her eyes were never flinching from, you know, she was absolutely focused on the line ahead. Yeah, that was one of my little takeaways from the weekend. Well, Zog, you'll remember some... 20 years ago, Violet and I made a TV series called Gamepad about video games. And as part of that process of making it, we'd often have to get people to play video games and commentate on what they're doing while they're playing it. And it's that thing of being able to walk and chew gum at the same time, as they say in Hollywood. And it's remarkably difficult to do. And I think what you've mm. identified there with Danica Patrick was her innate ability to absolutely drive that McLaren flat out round that circuit whilst remain perfectly communicative in everything that she did. You know, she was really fluid in her conversation whilst driving. It's lovely to see that, isn't it? It was a pleasure. Absolutely. I think it was a bit of a shock to her. I also think that Formula One is still a bit of a shock to a lot of American motorsport fans because the pinnacle of American motorsport, IndyCar, 
compared to Formula One, is still really quite knockabout when you think about it. You know, the fewer people that do the pit stops, the ability to sort of crash out of the race and then sort of get back in it and still be in the top three, that would never happen in Formula One. And hearing Danica's comments on the sort of intricacies, the very fine nuances that Formula One go to to get things absolutely right. She kept talking about how clean and shiny it all is and they've got floors in the garages. It's immaculate. It's lovely to see an outsider's viewpoint of that which we take for granted these days. It is. And just on an entirely unrelated note, just off on a bit of a tangent, in relation to Formula One in the USA... There has been some talk that there'll be maybe another couple of F1 races in the USA, one of which may be in Las Vegas. And I recently learned that my old favourite poker room in Vegas, the Mirage... Yes, I heard you talk of it before. ...was built just about on the end of the straight going into, I think, Turn 4 in the uh, the... Uh, the Caesars the, Palace, the Car the Park Palace Grand Prix, yeah, because they previously run the US Grand Prix, as you say, in the car park of Caesars Palace, yeah, way back in the eighties, and the enormous car park of Caesars Palace was big enough to accommodate an F1 track, and it was subsequently developed, built on, and the Mirage was one of the things that was built in that car park and yeah it turns out the mirage poker room was just about at the end of one of the straights fantastic i welcome the idea of more f1 races in america it's kind of inevitable with an american owner now liberty media at the moment they are talking about a miami grand prix as well which i believe is scheduled the las vegas grand prix would be a spectacle again wouldn't it because it's entertainment city las vegas and i think f1 is delivering in terms of entertainment and hopefully in the next two years with the new rules, that entertainment will ramp up even more. But it's great that America gets Formula One, and it's interesting how that was achieved. I mentioned that it was really not so much the presence of Haas, an American team in Formula One that's done it, but it was the Netflix thing that got to so many people, Mm. which would never have happened in Bernie Eccleston's day. Bernie would never have allowed a documentary team to have done that and have that sort of access. But it's absolutely worked. It has worked very well, but it's interesting to know. I just read that Max Verstappen said he may not cooperate with the makers of Drive to Survive in the future. He feels that they take a few too many liberties with the truth as they present it in trying to amplify rivalries that maybe aren't really there. And they're sort of crafting storylines, creating storylines, not out of thin air, but they're not being entirely truthful in what they're presenting, which I thought was interesting. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. And he's not alone, Sarah, because George Russell said the same as well, almost identical. But you know what they say, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. eh? (laughs) Exactly. And it is a good story. I've greatly enjoyed Drive to Survive. And I think, you know, you always expect a certain amount of at least selectivity, you know, being quite selective in what documentary filmmakers are going to show you. Yeah, but it is interesting that a couple of drivers are not quite happy with the way things are being portrayed. If I could play devil's advocate, though, it might be the case that Max Verstappen and George Russell have been outed on stories that they didn't want to share with the public. Oh. That is possible. Yeah, yeah. Because I actually have spoken to some people that work on Drive to Survive, and the access that they get isn't as accessible as what they have got in, say, 
other similar programs that they're doing for other sports. So you'll never get a shot of a driver crying, for example, or you'll never be able to see Lewis Hamilton in his change rooms or there is certain access that they can't get. Where I do agree with you, maybe they fabricate things, but for something to be aired on Netflix, it would go through a screening process of, you know, multiple times through multiple eyes, all the Formula One execs, you know, all of Netflix and any important people that would need to see that footage before it goes to air. So you never really know. Maybe they just weren't happy with what was put to air. Yeah, I'm not saying they're fabricating anything. I can believe that they're massaging... Yeah, the truth. (laughs) The truth a little. But yeah, your point about maybe George Russell and Max Verstappen just aren't entirely happy with the way that some of their interactions or behaviours have been portrayed. That's quite possible. Talking about interactions and how F1 is portrayed to particularly an American audience... I don't know if you watched the build-up, Zog, to the race. They had an enormous lad singing the American national anthem. And I have to say, fair play, I thought he sang it beautifully. He wasn't one of those people who go out and sing an anthem and warble every note and add additional notes, which are simply not in the melody. He sang basically the root melody of the Stars and Stripes, but yodelled the last line, which was glorious. I'm quite moved. I thought that was lovely. And speaking of national anthems, I've noticed that the Dutch national anthem, mm-hmm. Het Wilhelmus, which we've been hearing more of, yep. every time I hear the first few notes, I expect to then hear Oh Little Town of Bethlehem. Yes, it is. Uh, right? oh, really? Yeah, it <laughs> sounds like a, a Christmas carol. It always has from the very word go. Yeah. Het Wilhelmus. I learnt the lyrics and recorded that for On Speed many years ago. Maybe it's about Fantastic. time we ran that again. In fact, we will have to run it if and when Max wins this championship. Okay, talking about the build-up, as I was, did you notice for the first time in 18 months or more, two years, Brundle was allowed to do a grid walk to mixed success? All the usual combatants, the Formula One drivers and the team members, were really good at giving him access. And yet several others refused to talk to him like, what's her name? The Stallion? Uh, Megan the Stallion. Megan the Stallion, who just seemed like a grumpy old trout. And when Brundle was told, no, you can't do that, he said, no, I'm sorry, mate, I just did, so I can. (laughs) I like that. Yeah, there was somebody else he tried to have a word with that he got a bit of a brush off from. Venus Williams. Yeah, I think so. That's that's right. Again, they're old sparring partners, those two. He's failed with her before. I was actually talking to Alex Goy about this earlier on, and Alex is of the opinion that, oh, these poor people should be allowed to have a quiet day out. But actually, I don't think they do because they knew the risk when they entered the business of superstardom that everyone's going to want to talk to them. And, you know, if they're on the F1 grid, they're not there to look at cars. They are there to get noticed. So in my opinion, they are fair game. You know what they say? A person does not go to the pub and sit at the end of a bar to be alone. They're there to have someone say, hey, dude. What's up? You know what I mean? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But there was an immeasurably tall... There were several um, basketball players then. Not Shaq at the end, but earlier on there was a slim guy who must have been over seven feet tall. Uh, Chris Bish? Chris Bosch? You'll uh, know better than me. Yeah. I'm not up on NBA, but... Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Bish, Bash, Bosch. But Shaq's entry at the end in that huge vehicle, he arrived with the trophy for the winner in what looked like... 
Something from Wacky Races. It genuinely looked like a vehicle from Wacky Races made out of wood. Arkansas Chugabug. Yes, that was it. The Arkansas Chugabug. That was quite a vehicle. We sometimes talk about big American cars being land yachts, uh, or <laughs> yes. land barges, you know. This was a land ship. That was a, <laughs> a proper land yacht. It was enormous, big enough to accommodate the entire Red Bull crew who went and sat in it underneath the podium and it was very interesting seeing that vehicle there prominent underneath the podium again something that bernie eccleston would never have allowed any non-formula one sanctioned vehicles would never be allowed within 100 meters of the podium and then shack standing at the back who was every bit as tall as lewis on the podium and he was standing on the ground he was so tall it was very funny But I think Formula One fans in America, particularly those who come from IndyCar or NASCAR, must have been absolutely baffled by the race because that first corner, everybody took off, went round the first corner and nobody crashed into each other. Hey, what, isn't that what's supposed to happen? Yeah, in IndyCar, uh, first corner, everybody hits each other and then we uh, run under the pace car for uh, 20 laps and get loads of commercials in, TV commercials. It's a bit of professionalism for you. That's what it is. There's one thing that was all over social media actually during the weekend was Daniel Ricciardo's ride in the number three car. Ah, uh, yeah. Did you see that? In was it Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s old NASCAR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hashtag do it for Dale. It's a Monte Carlo, a Chevy Monte Carlo from the 80s, I think. Yes. He was having a good time in that, wasn't he? He looked like he was having a lot of fun. Yeah, and I predicted something before the race. I said to Tycho that, you know, Daniel's having a great weekend. He's also having a lot of distractions. I often think that too many distractions will pull your focus away from doing well in the race, but it seemed to enhance Daniel's performance. He had a great weekend, so I take that back. Enough respect to him. He was very excited. Yeah, it was the Dale... Earnhardt Sr.'s 1984 Wrangler Chevrolet Monte Carlo. There you go. Of course, Dave Earnhardt Sr., not Junior, forgive me. Two of the things about Formula One and new teams I think we should mention quickly before we wrap this. I hear that Michael Andretti himself, uh, let's not call him failed, but as a less than exemplarily successful Formula One driver when he drove for McLaren all those years ago, Michael Andretti's team, Andretti Racing, are... Thinking about coming into Formula One, they've made an offer to Sauber, who run the Alfa Romeo team, apparently of some $300 million. And Sauber have not accepted. But that doesn't mean that they've turned it down. Apparently, the board are considering this. And Andretti are, you know, one of the greatest names in motorsport in the world. And Andretti racing run in multiple categories, IndyCar, Extreme E, Formula E, IMSA in the States. And they're talking about coming in and immediately putting Colton Herter, son of Brian Herter, into an Andretti run Sauber slash Alpha next year. So there would be an American driver on the grid. That would be welcomed by American fans, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, I was going to say, I think if you're looking for a bit more American involvement in the sport to help further drive interest in the States, I think what it needs is an American driver. Yeah. Well, we did have Pietro Fittipaldi driving the Haas for a Friday morning session. And in fact, for a race or two last year. What a shame that he didn't stick around. Fittipaldi and Andretti, you know, greatest names in motorsport. Mm. Okay, and finally, one other thing I hear that Renault, the mother company who own Alpine, are considering entering Formula One 
with a B team so that they can play the game at the same sort of level that Ferrari do with Hassan Alpha, that Red Bull do with Alpha Tauri, or even to a lesser extent that Mercedes do with Aston Martin. You know, they have a second team that helps them out with data. But here's the question. If you were Renault and you were coming into Formula One, what would you brand your second team if the A team is now Alpine? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I think they may have to dig deep into French motor racing heritage. Bring up the name Ligier, perhaps? Or Matra? Matra had an association with Renault in the past, of course. Maybe get the Prost name back in. How about that? Uh... There you go. Zog, that's what I was alluding to. And I'm so glad you said it. That's the one that makes the most sense, isn't it? If you were going to run a B team, you'd call it Prost, wouldn't you? But what colour could you run it in? Because you can't run it in the same colour blue as the A team, can you? Maybe you do a, another red, white and blue. I mean, uh, there's a bit too much of that around at the moment, maybe. But uh, yeah, maybe you do a red, white and blue tricolor. Yeah, it would be nice to welcome another team to Formula One. I think we need a few more teams on the grid to upset the order. And I'm not sure if this is going to happen. It's only been rumoured because apparently you've got to put down a sort of a bond of 300 million. Wow. To create a new entry, yeah. Well, yeah, the alternative would be, to you know, is there another team on the grid that they could that they could take over. I'm not sure there's anyone's really in the frame for that, you know, unless... Well, McLaren have struggled financially recently and it's also been mooted that if Audi and Porsche come in with the new engine regulations in two or three years, Audi's belief is that they want to acquire a team and that McLaren is their favourite choice. So we might see a team called Audi McLaren for a while, but then it would become Audi. Well, Audi actually have taken themselves out of the Formula E, so they won't be in the Formula E next year. I reckon this is something I talked about a year ago on the programme when Williams was sold out. I said Williams is going to be the name to vanish, and I think Audi would buy the Williams team and totally rebrand it Audi. That's my guess. I'm probably wrong. I often am, but I'm willing to put it out there. Ar ôl byw yn Llundain am 40 mlynedd, mae Gareth Gaz Top Jones yn dod nôl i Gymru i neu sialens a noddau fywyd. Uh, no, you haven't had a stroke. You probably can't understand what that lady was saying there because you're probably not a Welsh speaker. But let me try and explain what all this is about. This, in the background, is the trailer for my new TV series, which is called Gareth Jones Novio Adre, which means Gareth Jones Swimming Home. As you know, during August, I attempted to do something that's never been done before, and that is to swim all the way from South Wales to North Wales, across rivers, lakes, and reservoirs. And I would have to swim 60 kilometers in three weeks to do this. It's been turned into a three-part television series made in the Welsh language. But if you don't speak Welsh, don't worry. I am certain that you'll be able to follow what goes on in this programme, as you might follow a Scandinavian drama, because, of course, there are subtitles and there are bits of English used in the programme. It's a project that I am immeasurably proud of, one of the biggest things I've ever done in my life. And I would very, very much appreciate it if you watch this program the first episode goes out at 9 p.m on friday the 29th of october 2021 it's on s4c 
That's Channel 4 Wales, which is available on Sky and Freeview and lots of other ways as well. You can also watch the programme on the BBC iPlayer live. So you've got no excuse for not watching it and I would love it if you watched it. Gareth Jones, Novia Adre, this Friday. Who knows, you may even pick up a bit of Welsh yourself. The day that we're recording this programme is October the 25th, 2021, which is actually a bit of an auspicious day for people who own and drive cars in London, because today is the official start of ULES, the Ultra Low Emission Zone in London. Zog, perhaps you can summarise what that means for people who don't live outside of London, might not be aware of what this is? Uh, well, it's basically a zone that is bigger than the congestion charging zone in central London that goes out to a south circular road, a north circular road, a decent chunk of London. And you will be levied a charge of £12.50 if you drive your vehicle in that zone on any day, unless it is new enough to certain emission standards. I think it's basically post-2009 or 2006 vehicles. Yeah, 2006. Yeah, 2006, I think. Uh, basically, a car's got to be Euro 4 compliant if it's petrol and Euro 6 if it's diesel. Yeah, I believe that's right. Or if the vehicle is, I think, 40 years or older, it is also exempt. So that will affect quite a lot of people including me my vehicle comes into the chargeable category so yeah my vehicle will become a good deal more expensive to use in london we'll talk about that in a second zog but sarah how does this affect you well it doesn't really because i'm not driving yeah but i do think i mean i don't know you tell me Zog, because you're affected by it more than me is it something that you see as a positive thing Actually, I kind of do. At the same time, I don't love the fact that my car becomes a lot more expensive to use any time I want to take it out. But, you know, I choose to drive a stupid old car. And if it was a daily driver that I needed to use, I would get a newer vehicle for that. And the bottom line is that I'm absolutely okay with, I agree with the principle of the London government and other city governments levying these kind of charges in order to modify people's behaviour, in order to encourage people to drive more efficient, less polluting vehicles, and in order to reduce the amount of pollution that you get in congested urban areas, in urban areas where there's a high concentration of people who are affected by those emissions. Yeah, that's basically my attitude. I have to suck it up because I choose to drive a stupid old car. Yeah, we're just the old generation, aren't we? We come with old technology that we've had for a long time and things move on. I remember in about 1981, the rules changed regarding how big a capacity motorcycle you were allowed to drive on L-plates. And at the time, I owned a 250cc motorbike. And the law changed that you can only drive 125s. So overnight, I either had to, I had some warning, obviously, I either had to pass my motorcycle test or sell my motorbike. And I failed to do either of those things before the bottom dropped out of the market for bigger bikes that you couldn't drive on L-plates. So I ended up giving my bike to my brother. It was the only thing I could do. It was suddenly worthless. So we'll talk about what you're going to do with your car 
in a minute. I have a couple of questions or suggestions. Sarah, I guess what I was alluding to is how this affects you is it's going to make your life better because you live in a part of London, arguably with the greatest traffic density of all. And so air quality is going to improve. And the whole idea of this is to improve air quality for Younger people, people who are going to live in this longer than we are. You're going to live another 30 years beyond me, Sarah, I hope. Well, I suppose that's the only thing I was going to say. It would be great to have less pollution out there in the middle of London. Often when I walk along those very busy roads or the main sort of highway roads in central London, the pollution is rife. And some of my friends actually wear a mask, not because of COVID, but because of the pollution. Yep. If they're walking through those areas. And it's better for your skin, yeah, better for your obviously lungs. I think overall health, definitely. What are your options, Zoggy? As far as I can see it, one is use your car, pay twelve pounds fifty every time that you go even a hundred yards or past a camera. Two, sell your car. Three mothball your car until five years when it's technically old enough not to have to pay that charge by which time i would imagine they will have banned all internal combustion engine cars or option four put an electric motor in your car are any of those the realistic options that you're going to pursue at the moment you know my daily transport is mostly walking public transport you know i actually use my car relatively rarely at the moment and I'm very attached to it so my inclination is to stick with it you know pay the charge when I need want to use it yeah you know I may revisit that decision in a couple of years or you know in five or six years time it'll be old enough to be exempt so that'll be lovely but that's a while to wait for me I kind of sidestep it because I got rid of my Toyota some two and a bit years ago now And since then, I've managed on a succession of cars that I get on test all the time. So when I need a car, I've got a car. But I don't have one sitting outside my house most of the time, not being driven around. However, what I do have to say is, as a result of becoming 60 in July, I now have one of those freedom passes, an old folks bus pass, essentially, which means I can travel on any public transport, bus, tube and train within a defined greater London area for absolutely free. Well, hey. So I have this incredible liberty that costs me nothing now and I can get a bus from, you know, a couple hundred metres away from my front door. That'll take me to a train station that could put me, well, anywhere in Europe, really, you could say, Brexit allowing. So, yeah, I'm surprisingly unaffected by you, Les, but I do feel for people like you, Zark, and people who have to also commute every day who are going to swallow up a great loss getting rid of their car at the moment. It's tricky, but this is the green future that we're facing, which brings me to Extreme E, which means if it's called Extreme E, does that mean other Formula E is Slight E? You know, this is extreme E. Oh, it's only slightly E. But extreme E is trying to marry up the world of a passion for motorsport with environmental awareness. And they had a race this last weekend in lovely Sardinia, one of my favourite places in the world. I adore Sardinia. Although where they were in Sardinia looked a little grubby for the race. It looked like a bit of a wasteland, really. Maybe that was the point. I'm rather enjoying Extreme E. I remember when it was announced, we all got a little bit excited by it. And it's remained exciting for me. I think it absolutely delivers astonishing 
knockabout entertainment, every weekend they go out there. We've introduced some terms which make me smile as well. You know, they talk about hyperdrive, this sort of turbo boost, this energy boost that you can use. Very science fiction. I like the term hyperdrive. And now... When they've got everyone on the grid, as it were, waiting to start the race, the race controller invites everyone to energize your systems. I mean, that's very Star Trek. Uh, yeah, I like that. I like that. Well, and, yeah, I mean, you say it's knockabout racing, knockabout entertainment. I found it, to be honest, to be a little bit too knockabout. Mm-hmm. There's just a bit, there's too much there is a lot going on. random attrition and retirement because of a bit of contact and somebody ending up upside down yep. with only two wheels left on their wagon. I kind of don't love the layouts where you can have these entirely different routes you can take from point A to point B. Yeah, I think it's a little bit too knockabout, a little bit too random in some respects. Yeah, there's some fine drivers in there, yep. you know, and it has given us some good bits of entertainment, but... Yeah, that's my take on it. It is a little bit like the Dakar race where you're sort of given get from A to B but find your own way there. So there's no specific track. Exactly. But you can still sort of find a way to get there. And I thought that was interesting because some drivers just started going way off the field. But because they went a different way to the other drivers, they actually ended up out in front because if you've got one sort of following the other in succession, I guess like a Formula 1 race – they pick up all the dust and yep. things like that. So they've got to try and play it smart, really. Yeah, I mean, you've nailed it, Sarah. That's exactly right. It's a rally raid, and a rally raid is get from here to there. There are certain gates that you have to hit. You can choose whichever way you want to go, and you've got a car theoretically robust enough to go over any terrain that you may find. Now, that's where this falls down. Yeah, it's arguable since there yeah, are so many... it's arguable that these cars yeah. are strong enough, or that the drivers are going too quick for the technology there is a trade-off either they have to slow down and take these rougher bits more slowly or they need to beef up the car it reminds me of the early days of formula one the grand prix racing where a driver would lead the entire race but make one bad gear change on the last lap the gearbox would completely destroy and the car would fail to finish and someone else behind them would win that sort of level of attrition where you could just fall out of this race at any point i kind of like that but i think the balance you write zog it's a little bit swinging towards the circuit or the track rather than the car at the moment now the biggest problem i think extreme e has is dust if you have cars following each other on a dry dusty circuit the leader they can go Everyone else behind hasn't got a clue. So how do you square that? How do you fix that? And I've been thinking about it. I think I have a possible solution. They all start from this sort of large gate in a line. Um, There are five cars in the final these days. I think there should be three initial gates that the cars have to go through. And that initial gate determines which loop you are sent on. And whoever gets through the first gate, you can't take that one. You have to take gate two. And if someone's in gate two ahead of you, you have to take gate three. And then the next time you go around the loop and you come back to this gate, you must, if you went through gate one, have to take gate two this time. And that forces everybody to do the same circuit more or less at the same time, but not nose to tail so that you get clouds of dust. I am genuinely considering getting in touch with Alejandro Agag and saying to him, Alejandro, I think I've worked out what you need to do. 
the downside of this is it would spread the cars further away from each other. We don't get wheel-to-wheel -wheel racing, which is very difficult to achieve in a rally raid situation. But it would offer a possible solution. The other one is to race in the wet. And the final yesterday was in the wet and that kept the dust down. And that enabled cars to run nose to tail without being blinded by dust clouds. Yeah, I mean, and it means as a spectator, you can see more of the action rather than having a lot of the action obscured by clouds of dust, Very which, yeah, which, which is an issue for Extreme E. And did you see the water splash that they had in this race? Yes. And the noise it made when those cars hit that water. Boosh! It was really visceral. And I come back to what I said about extreme e when we first approached it that it's likely to be more visceral because of the surfaces that they're running on more visceral than formula e which is a bit anodyne a bit dry but you get this sort of clattering and banging and the bashing of gravel and hitting of rocks and other vehicles that makes it more of an audio spectacle than a lot of other electric racing. And I'm right behind it. I'm a big fan of it. As you know, I became a fan of Dakar in the last couple of years. And for me, Extreme at the moment is like a nicely prepackaged domestic version of Dakar. You know, Extreme is to Dakar what Rallycross is to World Rally Championship. You know what I mean? It's a nice, conveniently packaged version. I'm a big fan. I'm really enjoying it. That's a reasonable comparison, I think. There's more purity and there's more of a real challenge in something like the Dakar Rally, I think. Yeah, agreed. I was initially quite enthusiastic about Extreme E. It's not quite living up to what I was hoping for. I'm finding there are aspects of it that aren't working for me. Yeah, maybe if they take on some of your suggestions, Gareth, that'll improve it for mm -hmm. next time around. We'll see. I'm working for the greater good here, people. I like saving the planet, saving motorsport. That's my plan. Yeah, a lot of cars broke down. It was really tragic. Loeb's steering broke. Chip Ganassi, Sarah Price in the Hummer had a massive breakdown. The door flew off the Abdukabra car, which is kind of hilarious and funny. And then Jensen Button's team, JBXE, their car broke down too. They tried to limp home. They had a puncture, I think. Failed yeah. to do it. Sarah's in quite a bad crash. Yeah, yeah. The tumbles and rolls and, you know, it was visceral. And did you see that their podium was made out of wood. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah. I'm assuming it was sustainable wood that they were using. I thought that was kind of a nice touch as well. And they had kids handing out the trophies or helping hand out the trophy. And if the environmental message is that we've got to take care of this planet to hand it over to our kids, I mean, the kids there visible in this kind of makes sense. They're on message there. And the next race is here in the UK, in England land, down in Dorset. They're calling it the Jurassic Grand Prix. Now, what are they going to do? Are they going to genetically engineer tyrannosaurs and have them racing around alongside the cars? You've got to avoid those or getting trodden on by a huge sauropod. I don't know. Or are they simply having this race on the Jurassic Coast in Dorset? And that's actually what they're doing. They're doing it in Bovington which is a part of Dorset I know. They're actually doing it in the army proving grounds there where they used to fire missiles and operate tanks, teach people to drive tanks. So it's really going to be very rugged. And the Bovington Tank Museum is there, which both I and Violet have been instrumental in producing content for in one way or another over the years. So I should be watching that. I don't know if they allow... An audience, they haven't up to now. But I'd really like to go down to Dorset and watch an extreme e-race in the flesh. 
I think that'd be great entertainment. Although you probably won't see much, just dust and some clattering in the distance. Maybe it is better on television. Well, it's not going to be too dry and dusty, is it? So, yeah, it could be one of the better extreme events, I think. Yeah, it's in December. In fact, late December, the 18th or thereabouts. So you're right, Tog, it ain't going to be dry and dusty. It's going to be wet and muddy and splattery, which might be very visceral. That'd be great. Yeah, looking forward to it. Me too. Okay, that's it for Gareth Jones on Speed. We've had plenty to talk about. Please don't forget, you guys, not just you two, Zog, Sarah, but you guys listening at home, please watch Gareth Jones' Novio Adre Swimming Home on S4C, or S Pedwarek, as we call it in Welsh, on Friday, 9pm, the 29th of October. It's also on the BBC iPlayer. Wow. Come and see me do something I can't believe I actually did. I genuinely can't believe I did it. But for now... I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you, Zoggy. From Zog, it's goodbye. Goodbye. And from Sarah, it's farewell. Farewell. Or good day, or whatever it is you guys <laughs> say. And as we say in Welsh, tra am ruan. Goodbye for now. See you guys. Bye. To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! 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 <laughs>